Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Alexandra Levitt is an internationally recognized thought leader, futurist, author, and consultant. Actually, on the book cover, it says futurologist. We'll, get, we'll talk about that in a second. She conducts primary workplace research on behalf of Fortune 500 companies, including American Express, Deloitte, PepsiCo, Whirlpool, and previously, the Obama administration. She's a columnist for the New York Times and Forbes, and she's been named top entrepreneur to follow on Twitter by Forbes, top career expert to follow on Twitter by Mashable, and top business expert to follow on Twitter by CEO World. Her latest book, which we're going to talk about here today, Humanity Works, Merging Technologies and People for the Workforce of the Future, and it's published by Kogan Page. She's been in front of our microphones several times before. Alexandra, welcome back to AMA Edgewise. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's great to be here. Let's jump in. What are, in your mind, what are a few of the major changes we will see in the workplace of the future? <laughs> the workplace of the future, right? which is of the future. already here in many I respects. Know, right? But uh, what I do as a futurist is I look at trends that are patterns mm-hmm. and that are percolating up very slowly through the marketplace and what I deem to be the most likely to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. So it's not rocket science. It's not looking in a crystal ball. It's just picking out things that sure. are starting to hit on a minor scale and, and trying to assess when they're going to happen on a major scale. But that said, all of the trends that I talk about are things that are happening in places. They're just not widely adopted. And so when we talk about the future of work or the now of work, I really like to phrase it to keep it simple in terms of three C's. And that's collaboration, customization, and creativity. So in terms of the first one, collaboration, the way that we work together is going to be different come 2030. Our teams will be much shorter term. They will be assembled in order to solve a very specific problem, and then they will be disbanded very quickly once that problem has been addressed. And you might work with someone for two days who you'll never see again. And so the importance of establishing bonds with people who you have short-term relationships becomes very important. Then, of course, there's the human-machine hybrid teams. We're already seeing some of those now with the rise of chatbots and Alexa for business, handling certain tasks within a team we're going to see machines become more and more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we work with them is going to be different. And then, of course, we're going to see our teams become more virtual, more remote. We're going to have contract workers taking over a lot of different positions so that you will have different types of workers on your team. So overall, collaboration is going to be a big part of that. Customization is the second major trend and everybody is going to have a completely unique career there will be no such thing as looking at your boss and being able to tell okay well i'm going to go from point a to point b to point c in my career and everyone's going to be required to have a wide bench of cross-functional expertise so that you can play a lot of different roles within a company you can follow the market in terms of what the market is looking for. This means that managers need to have conversations with their employees about where they want to take their career next. And sometimes that might be out of the manager's department, but that's customization. The most exciting thing for me in terms of customization is productivity wearables, where most of us have some sort of device that measures our our steps or our heartbeat or our sleep. And in the near future, we're going to see them measuring work productivity. So not only will your work be customized according to what you want to do, but it will be customized according to what you're best at. And 
the machine will help the boss decide. So that's customization. And then finally, there's creativity. And creativity is probably the most important skill that human beings can bring to the table in an age of smart machines. Because if you think about machines creating original product, like there's no way to tell if that's any good, if it's authentic. You need what's known as human in the loop to be able to decide, is, is this something we can go with or do we really need to step back and have a human being do it. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get machines to know what motivates human beings. It's hard to get machines to figure out what the nuances and the morality is behind certain decisions. That takes human creativity. I like to say wherever there's a, a machine inserted into a process, there needs a creative human to be able to design it, to build it, to fix it when it breaks, and to figure out how to redeploy it. So one of the things I emphasize the most in Humanity Works is the importance of creativity and the fact that no matter what job you have, you need to be creative, especially if you're a tech person who isn't used to using those skills. Those people are in danger of being automated out of a job. So you really have to focus on creativity. And some of the other skills that are associated with creativity are intuition, judgment, empathy, interpersonal sensitivity. And those are all skills. If we we haven't practiced them, we really need to because those are where human beings are going to add value in the future. Are you familiar with the science fiction writer William Gibson? Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah, the first part of what you were talking about before, mm-hmm. the, the future is here. Mm-hmm. It's just not equally distributed. Exactly, right. So along those same lines, how soon will these changes reach the tipping point, and what constitutes the tipping point? It's a great question, and I think it depends on who you ask. Uh-huh. But I would say that some of them are moving more quickly than others. Example of one that's moving very quickly is the rise of the contract workforce. So just 10 years ago, we saw it was relatively rare for people to be freelancers or contractors. Most people had full-time jobs working with one organization. If you were a professional, if you were on a manufacturing line, then you might have had shift work. But it was unusual for someone to work for themselves. And now we see in 2018, it's approximately a quarter of the global workforce consists of people who work for multiple employers, and they have multiple jobs, and they continuously have to sell themselves. And by about 2030, that's going to rise to about half of the global workforce will be contract workers. What year is that again? 2030. So I'll be how old? (laughs) Okay, sorry. (laughs) And, And I think that This is going to reach a tipping point if it hasn't already within the next couple of years. And the problem that I see is that most organizations are not prepared to have this many contract workers under their purview. They're still set up as full-time employers. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that you might have a manager bringing in one contract worker using a system. And you might have another manager bringing in a contract worker using something completely different. It's not systematized, which is dangerous because the IRS is looking at this stuff. They're looking at, you know, this person has has worked for you at your location for five years doing only your company's work. They're not a contract worker. They're an employee. And you can get dinged pretty badly financially if you're doing this incorrectly. And then, of course, if you've got contract workers who are running amok – they might be non-productive. They might be getting the company messaging wrong if they're customer-facing. So we're just sort of waiting for this to blow up right now. And I think the tipping point will be when some company gets into some really big trouble by not systematizing this. And I think the inclusion of machines in teams 
is reaching a tipping point when we look at what happened, I believe it was last year, with United Airlines, how everybody's using data now, and we're making a lot of business decisions based on data. But this is a perfect example of where you need the human in the loop, because what they had decided was, based on the algorithm that showed them the best configuration for how to get flight attendants from one place to another, that they should get those flight attendants away from Chicago to their destination at all costs. And you saw a bunch of United Airlines staffers just kind of stand there and be like, well, the data says these flight attendants have to get there. We got to pull somebody off this plane. And nobody really took a step back and thought about it. What happens to our reputation? What, what will the consequences be of this type of move? And that's when you saw the massive fallout. And so this is the tipping point. How do we incorporate machines in a way that makes sense from the business, not just from a a bottom line perspective, but from a reputational standpoint, because machines don't have morality. They don't know the difference. They're just looking at what's the best thing to do from a cost perspective. They don't have that multi-dimensional perspective that we do. So I hope I answered your question. Essentially means when there's a big mistake, when a company gets into big trouble, everyone else starts to say, ah, we better look at this and fix it. And it's happened with data already and i think it will happen with contract workers pretty soon let's maintain this sort of shadow line of the i don't call it the positive and the negative but i think the fear issues that almost that need to be dealt with and the human factors issues which absolutely need to be dealt with what are the immediate concerns to workers as these things change you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's any number of bad science fiction movies mm-hmm. and Dilbert cartoons and stuff like that. But the reality of this adjustment or this fear, can you talk about the immediacy of that and what workers, the gut check they need to mm-hmm. be doing? Sure, Dave. And this is one of my favorite questions because people will ask me a related question, which is, what am I scared about? Yeah. What keeps me up at night? And they assume I'm going to say something like, All jobs are going to be automated because the media has latched onto this as humans are going to be automated away. I'm actually not concerned about this at all. I watch Netflix. I know what's going to (laughs) happen. I know you're a futurologist, but I've seen those movies. I know. Right. And I just, I I don't think it's going to happen for a few reasons. I mentioned that wherever there's a machine inserted into a process, there's a bunch of humans that are needed to make it go. We also have new job categories that arise as a result of technology, and social media manager is one of my favorites, where you know you just have this category of people that didn't even exist in 1998 when I graduated from college, and now I work with them on every single team. There's a social media manager. I mean, you guys have them at AMA. So you know that is something that I am not concerned about. When we look at the research, we even see that in terms of jobs that are going to be automated – Really what it is, is there's about 60% of all current occupations will be affected by automation, but the majority of their tasks will stay. It'll only be certain tasks that will be automated. So what people need to be thinking about, of course, is where are things going with respect to your individual role in your industry? What's most likely to be automated and where can you focus your attention to add the most value with your human skills? That's what I'm not concerned about. What I am concerned about is the fact that our work structures are going to change radically. And just how you have a bunch of people who aren't cut out to work in the corporate world, so they go start their own gig, I think there's going to be as many, if not more, people who are not cut out to work for themselves, who just don't have that skill set and have never developed it. 
And all of a sudden, they're going to be thrown into a situation where you do have to sell yourself. You do have to market yourself. You do have to be flexible and agile and change what you're learning and doing. And you can't rely on an individual company to train you or tell you what you need to scale up on. Mm-hmm. That's going to be your responsibility. And I you, think you have to own that. You have to own that. And I don't think, Dave, that a lot of people are going to do so well in that. That's yeah. my that's my biggest worry. In addition to, of course, there are people who are in the manufacturing sector who are on factory lines that will be automated out of a job. But those folks are sort of a different issue. I think for our audience here today, my biggest concern is can they hack it mm-hmm. in this new environment? And that's what I think people need to be thinking about. How can I train myself to be able to succeed in that type of work? And And what I recommend to people is in your current company, start doing it. Mm-hmm. Don't just limit yourself to your current job and the niche role that you play. Go out and start gaining this cross-functional expertise and figuring out what skills can you develop. And go to other departments and volunteer to shadow or work on an assignment. A company that I know here in Chicago in the oil and gas space has an internal job board where when one group gets really busy, they put out their internal jobs and people from other groups who aren't as busy come and they learn that skill set and they help out with that job. And you're practicing. You're practicing talking to other departments, other groups, other managers about how you can add value to a given process or system. We call this intrapreneurship, the practice of entrepreneurial strategies within the context of a larger organization, that's a great skill to have, to be able to come up with an improvement to an existing product, process, or service, and to be able to sell it within the organization. And and these are the skills that people need to be practicing. But people need to own this type of thing. And and every now and then I get up on a soapbox about this thing, because some people are very like, well, the company should, uh, the organization has to, they owe me, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? You got to you got to take ownership of yourself on this stuff. I didn't mean to be rude before when you saw me looking at my phone, but something you said to me triggered something before. And that's, uh, it had, it's it's an amalgam of some of the answers you've given me here today, which is this idea of having an understanding and appreciation of um, almost like systems theory. You know what I mean? Knowing how things work in conjunction with other things. Yes. And I read a book, it was like two, three years ago, I forget, mm-hmm. but it made quite an impression on me. And it was called The Logic of Failure, Recognizing and Avoiding Error in Complex Situations. Mm-hmm. And it was this German author, Dietrich Dorner. But a couple of the things he talks about in that book, he goes a great length talking about the Chernobyl disaster, mm-hmm. you know, and what happened there. And why am I going down this conversational path? I'm going down this path because people need to understand that there are systems within systems. And that turning the knob on something or keying something in or running a search or kicking off an algorithm or something like that, to your point, engenders one kind of loop. And you get a response and something happens or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what they don't pay attention to is the larger loop that this smaller loop might be embedded in. And the flight attendant thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Boom. That's great. Well, there's a human loop. You know what I mean? And I think if people want to prepare themselves better for this type of new world, they need to have an understanding of the relationships between themselves and technology, between themselves and other teams. And they need to prepare themselves to be more systematic in their thinking. How do they work with what's handed to them? 
and what do they hand off to somebody else? Does, does that make sense? That's brilliant. And it actually ties really well into some research I just did. With DeVry University's Career Advisory Board, we looked at what we were calling applied technology skills. So these are skills that leverage people, processes, data, and devices to assess what's the best way to incorporate different technologies into a given job and into the business. So it's not about knowing how to code or knowing how to build an app. It's about understanding that there is software out there that can help you build an app, that there is a way to code an algorithm if you have the right data scientists to give you the insights that you need. And that's applied technology skills. And that's exactly what you're saying. It's understanding how technology fits into a system Mm -hmm. and what the output is going to be. And everybody in any kind of role in any industry needs to have some degree of this. You know that the technology exists and you have to be able to leverage it. The key thing there, that's also a new learning for me, mm-hmm. is an awareness, some knowledge, maybe a facileness with it, or an ability to suss out the role this technology or this algorithm or this AI plays. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, and this is a huge shock for me, mm-hmm. now I'm not shocked anymore, but it's if you become a specialist and anything, it's you're like writing your own death sentence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because your expertise has a timestamp on it, like a loaf of bread. Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. And wow, I could blah 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 this and like coding. You talk about mm-hmm. coding. You could have some amazing coders out mm-hmm. there, C sharp coders and this coder and that coder, whatever. And how, how much longer are their skills gonna be good for? That's right. And those are the people who've been resting on their laurels for the past 20 years because there's been a tech shortage and they've been able to have any job they've wanted and they have not developed their human skills for the most part. I don't want to put a huge, (laughs) you know, I don't want to stereotype them. No, no, no. But they haven't needed to. Right? They haven't needed to. Now they do. Those people are, are in the biggest danger of being automated because those are the things that machines can do right now. And a lot of great work is being done with, again, working with machines to, Mm -hmm. you know, I want this code to do this. And, you know, the AI takes care of it for you. Mm -hmm. Culture is kind of an ephemeral Mm -hmm. word. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd like to believe we could read a book Mm -hmm. and be better at culture. We'd Mm -hmm. like to believe we sit in a classroom and we could learn how to be better at culture. But so much of culture is just like the air you breathe, the water you drink, it's how you live. And what organizations need to keep in mind as they incorporate the new technologies and the new thinking and the new processes and pay attention to, very careful attention to the impact on their culture, their organizational Mm -hmm. culture. I love the questions around culture because the truth is it's going to be more challenging than it ever was. And companies already struggle with culture when they have the majority of people in the same building and they can essentially force feed culture if they want because everybody's there. It's for the most part, a hierarchical environment where you hear what is the culture supposed to be from the top down, the managers communicate it, and we are not going to see a business environment that makes culture that easy mm-hmm. because you're going to have people working all over the place from all different cultures, <laughs> I mean, you know, cultures around the world, Of course, and you're going to have to really zero in on that sense of purpose, which that's not a new idea. People who have been talking about culture have been talking about purpose for a long time. But it's not done that often. And it's rare that you see a company where it really knows what it stands for and continuously communicates that, that has an internal and an external message that match up so that candidates know what they're getting into when they apply for a job and that customers know what they're buying. 
And that becomes essential because you have no way of showing people what you're all about. They can't walk in to your headquarters and kind of feel, like you said, the air you breathe. Well, a lot of your employees aren't going to be breathing that air. So how do you show what you're all about? And the answer is you have to be clear on it first, and then you have to communicate it out, and it has to be bigger picture. That's one of the things that always weirded me out about culture is even even if you get a company that says, eh, the heck with it. Our culture's fine. I don't need to worry about it. No training, no culture, the blah, 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 blah. There's still a culture. Whether whether you you know That's you, right. you talk about it or you don't, you yeah. know what I mean? It's there. Right. And you want to have the ability to shape it as a leader as opposed to just having the market or your employee base say what it is. Right. Yeah, how about guiding it? <laughs> yeah, how about guiding it? And and you have to recognize that yeah. when when you have such a, a disparate workforce, a sure. distributed workforce that People are saying different things, sure. and it's because they have no guidance, and it, it doesn't match up. And so people are really confused. I know. And that's not a good thing. No. <laughs> you don't want that. No. Alexandra, I'd love to consider this new stuff. I really would, mm-hmm. and it's an awesome book, mm-hmm. uh, like all the other futurologist mm-hmm. books mm-hmm. I read. But I'm way busy making the donuts. Mm-hmm. i got to show up, and i got to make the donuts. Every mm-hmm. day they yep. want me to make the donuts, I mm-hmm. make the donuts. Right. What do you say to somebody who says, I got day-to-day stuff I got to take care of. I can't be thinking this far in the future. Well, Dave, the thing about me is that I don't actually recommend anyone overhaul their business. When I give any advice, I never assume that a manager or a leader has the time to implement these trends on a wide scale. I think what you do is you get an overview of some of the trends that are coming. You can listen to this webcast. You can take just even a glance at the table of contents of the book will tell you a lot. And you pick something where you think you can make an impact. One of the things I tell people is that it's possible for anyone to be a futurist. All you need to do is pick something that interests you and try to determine where is it going and how is it going to affect you and your business. And one of the easier things you can do involves career customization. So people are, in many cases, already having these individualized, continuous feedback-related conversations with their employees. And so what you do is you just take that a small step further mm-hmm. and say, all right, well, we're talking about upskilling, we're talking about reskilling, we're talking about career development. Let's look at some of the trends that are going to shape how our role is changing. And how are you going to get these skills? Let's develop a plan for how you're going to future-proof your career. And it's in companies' best interest to do this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will say to me, oh, but why is it in a company's best interest to help somebody future-proof their career when they're going to be off being a contract worker? And the answer is those people are still being working for you because they have the institutional knowledge that you want. It might not be as a full-time employee, but they're going to be the people you still want to keep around. And so if they fail at being in this new structure, this new environment, that's not helpful to you. So as a manager, that's something that you've already got the feedback system in place in many cases, and you just take it a a little step further and say, I'm aware that we're going to need new skills. Those are the people who who really need to be kind of guided in in this respect, and, and I think leaders can do that, and it's pretty simple. So take a trend like career customization, pick one small thing that you're going to do, and then implement it into what you're already doing. Sure. You don't have to overhaul your business. The key to survival for the human race mm-hmm. is the development and the education of the up-and-coming people, the, mm-hmm. the, the young. Yep. College may not be what it once was, but, you know, education is still super important. Where does mm-hmm. education fit into this new environment, into this new approach? We are changing the way we educate our kids. That's partially driven by the kids themselves. We have a generation now known as Generation Z that are the school-aged kids, and they've 
been raised with technology. So instead of asking their teacher or their parents for the answer to a question, they're very curious. They'll go and ask Google or Siri or Wikipedia, and they're accustomed to figuring out what they're interested in and going and learning more about it. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen the rise of the flipped classroom in response to this where the kids are interested in something, they go research it, they learn about it, and then they come back and in the classroom is where they discuss their knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's not about the teacher necessarily having instruction. And so more of our educational models probably need to move to this Mm -hmm. because Gen Z doesn't like to just be kind of lectured at. Mm -hmm. They they have their own way of doing things and they are very independent. Mm -hmm. And with respect to whether college is necessary, this is the first generation to say it's not a, a foregone conclusion that we're going to go to college because it just sort of depends on what are you looking to do does it require that four-year degree or can you get a micro-credential or a certification? If you do go to college, there are networking benefits and social benefits that Gen Z does perceive that if you're taking all your courses online, you might not get those benefits. Mm-hmm. But that to them is one of the biggest advantages of going to college. It's not that you need this four-year program necessarily. Sure. depends on what you want to do. And so universities are going to have to become far more responsive to the different ways of learning, different structures of learning, different types of programs and degrees. And you sort of see some universities getting on board the massive open online courses mm-hmm. where they offer their in-person courses to people online. You might have 6,000 people taking mm-hmm. a data analytics class at Stanford, for example. So I think education is... Not as far behind as we might think, but like the corporate world, it's going to need to make some adjustments. Coincidental with this, I've also been reading some very high-end private elementary or grammar schools on the West Coast in and around Silicon Valley do not utilize technology Mm -hmm. in the classroom. They make a point of it being as human-focused as possible because the feeling is these kids are are swimming through it, Mm -hmm. and this is the one place where they can focus on their, their people skills. And I love that. Actually, it's a neat idea, right? Because this generation is weaker in that because they just haven't had the opportunity to practice because so many of them are doing everything online, including in the classroom. And I have to say, I have a 10-year-old who first got an iPad at school in third grade, and it's been the bane of my existence. I wish he didn't have it. Right. Because every, And the teachers are so proud. He spent 600 minutes on Khan Academy. I'm like... I'm not happy about that. Yeah. I want him learning how to interact with peers yeah. at school. Yeah. That's what so I, I actually am, am kind of on board. It's 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 an extreme reaction, kind of like when Yahoo got rid of Flex work. Well, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, you know, you, you can't really do that. Yeah. But I do like it in principle because I feel like this is again, I always tout human skills and, and this is an area where this generation is not as strong. And just to wrap up, um, I'm gonna ask you the question we ask almost everybody mm-hmm. who sits here. And puts up with my ridiculous questions. And, and, They're and good that's questions. That. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, the AMA, we'd like to think our noble cause is, is to help new managers, aspiring leaders, people who, you know, they've been great individual contributors mm-hmm. and now they have a larger calling or they have a larger assignment here. What's in this book for a new manager or an aspiring leader? So Humanity Works has a lot on what's known as transformational leadership, and the definition varies depending on who you talk to, but my understanding of transformational leadership is that you are not affiliated with like the command and control model where what you say goes, you got to a level, and therefore you're going to make decisions either by yourself or in a conference room with the other leaders, and you're going to pass them down. It's recognizing some of the best ideas actually come from the bottom of the organization, mm-hmm. the people who are client-facing, the people who are peer-facing, and that you have to be looking around for different perspectives 
and understanding that sometimes the best move that you can make is doing something that feels really uncomfortable to you. Mm-hmm. It's understanding you have to be agile, that you might have to pivot that you might have a strategy that you thought was going to last five years. Surprise, the market isn't really taking it, so you've got to go in a completely new direction. And it's being relatively cool with that. I think this is a change for a lot of people, but if you're an up-and-coming manager, you can develop that skill set as you're going along, as opposed to if you were in a manager Work on the pivot. Master those 40 pivot years. Skills. It's, it's hard to do that, I think. Right. And then just having good relationships. It sounds... Cheesy, it sounds like something we've been talking about for years, but it's still important to facilitate the human connection within your organization and understanding that that's different whether you have virtual employees or in-person employees. Mm -hmm. What you have to do to, to activate your talent, and when I talk about talent activation, I'm referring to getting people in a position to do their jobs most effectively. It's a little different than employee engagement. Because engagement is not always in a manager's control. Like if someone has something personal going on that's difficult, you might not be able to engage them. But you can activate them if you give them the right tools and you give them the right guidance. And so there are different ways to activate talent. But if you're a transformational leader, you'll pick up on those and how they differ from person to person and group to group. We've been speaking to Alexandra Levitt, author of the new book, Humanity Works, Merging Technologies and People for the Workforce of the Future. Alexandra, obviously could talk about this stuff all day. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much, Dave. I appreciate being here. Follow American Management Association on Twitter to learn more about upcoming free programs, the latest news, management insights, and special offers. You can follow us at A-M-A-N-E-T. That's A-M-A-N-E-T. Hope to tweet to you real soon. feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 